Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward and Nate talk about 1966 rock and roll's second miracle year, featuring electrified Bob Dylan, the Beach Boys making pet sounds, Stax hitting its stride, James Brown getting funky, the Beatles dropping acid, and the beginnings of the San Francisco scene. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined once again by Ed Ward, the author of The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. This is our second installment of the second book. Ed, welcome back. Hi. Hi there. And so today we're going to tackle the second chapter of the book, Annus Mirabilis II, Help from My Friends. Explain the title. Well, I was, it's just because, as, as I say at the beginning, um, the June of 1965 was a remarkable um, month and a lot of important things happened then. So that's what, uh, it's not a complete year, so it's not honest Mirabilis in that sense, but it is a, a strange coming together of forces that uh, released a lot of energy into the uh, into the culture. And you start the chapter with three anecdotes that seemingly have nothing to do with what we've been talking about. There's no mention of the charts. Nobody's recording any hit records. These three events. The first one is debut of a band that's not even a band yet. They're total rank amateurs playing at the Red Dog in Virginia City, Nevada, a ghost town. What's so important about the charlatans at the Red Dog in 1965? Well, the charlatans were essentially the first San Francisco band that actually had a following. There were other San Francisco bands all along in that era, you know, the Vegetables and the Mojo Men and like that. But um, really, the charlatans were the first 
sort of underground band. And they came out of um, a student community in uh, San Francisco, mostly people going to San Francisco State. And um, they, they were uh, the, the, the residents of this neighborhood were being, becoming known as hippies, a, a newish word on the horizon. And, um, and, and certainly if there was such a thing as hippie culture, it was centered in this, um, in this part of, um, the, of San Francisco. So what, what we're talking about here is the beginnings of the quote unquote San Francisco scene. And um, the story I'm telling is about that one of the stories. And another thread that you weave in there is about a poetry reading in London. Now, what was it about Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferenghetti and others doing a reading uh, for Barry Miles and the incipient crew there of the London Underground? Why is that relevant to our tale? Well, it's because, once again, the, the um, there was a hippie underground coming up in um, London, and Ginsburg was something of a superstar along the rock star level. And the idea that he was going to do a reading, they wanted to do it at Miles's bookstore, but that was ridiculous. Um, the crowds would have been too insane. So just there was this um, idea to uh, rent the Albert Hall, and they did somehow. And so Ginsburg started rounding up poets both um, British and American. Everybody was traveling a lot at that particular moment. So he was able to grab a lot of people that were uh, very important to the poetry scene at the time. And of course, he was the star. But people came from all over England to attend this event. I don't know how the word got out, maybe um, in the music press, but uh, likely not. It just um, the people hitchhiked there from uh, all over the British Isles. Uh, there was uh, one guy who came down from Inverness in Scotland, which is quite a distance. Yeah, that's a long haul. And the third uh, anecdote that you weave in here at the beginning has more to do with the substance than a place. Uh, it's, a, I guess, a substance in two places, and it, it connects to the two places we've already talked about, and the substance is LSD, and the pioneers there are Ken Casey, the, the novelist, famous for One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest, Cuckoo's Nest, and the other are the Beatles, who get dosed by their dentist. Right. Um, LSD was coming into the cultural scene pretty heavily. There, there were certain evangelists who were running around um, offering free doses to anyone who wanted them. And uh, there were, uh, there's one guy who was a, a millionaire who had a private plane. I, I'm not, can't remember his name, but he was really important. Also, um, the psychoactive elements of the, of this chemical were attracting serious research ideas. Research programs in Harvard um, and in Palo Alto, California, where the military um, took over a bit of Stanford University to see if they could weaponize LSD as a 
a means of defeating enemy troops. And uh, also up in Saskatchewan, of all places, there was some serious um, attention being put, paid to it as a tool for psychoanalysis, which was uh, another uh, place where that was happening was in Prague, in Czechoslovakia. Hmm. So um, all of a sudden, th these research projects started spawning, um, I guess you'd say, veterans. You know, students were needed to uh, take LSD and be studied as they, um, as they went on on their uh, trips. And um, a lot of them liked it and thought, wow, I'd, I'd like to get some more of that. I don't want to go back to the um, clinical surroundings that I was in. So um, a demand arose for um, LSD as, as a uh, underground um, drug substance. And the um, uh, a chemist named... Uh, Stanley Owsley, Owsley Stanley, excuse me, um, started producing it in his bathroom in Berkeley. And in volume and quality, too. Yes, that was it. He had a girlfriend who was a, a chemist as well as he, he was more, uh, more a physicist than a chemist, but he, he knew scientific research and he knew scientific techniques and so he was able to do this and so with he, this go ahead no he, he made it in his shower and uh, i met the guy who was living there and he said man don't take a shower in this house unless you're ready to do some serious stripping because apparently <laughs> it was still you know it only took tiny little amounts of it to get you stoned and and uh, so apparently it had just never been cleaned up Huh. It might be <laughs> impossible to eradicate, but <laughs> so with with the psychedelic undercurrent that sort of underlays this whole era, and it's it's a fascinating era where the leading artists are cross pollinating, where the uh, English artists are listening to the African American artists, and the white American artists are listening to the English artists. The folk scene is getting incorporated, and and everything's sort of coming together. And there's this 18-month explosion that you document in this chapter, and you start with the phrase, the Brits kept invading. And the Rolling Stones are sort of at the forefront of that in 1965 with their big hit, Satisfaction. Right. Yeah, the, the, the miracle song that Keith Richards wrote in his sleep. And, and, and then... According to him, yeah, and then records a, what he thought was a demo with acoustic guitars and a fuzz guitar... Uh, filling in for where he heard the horns and you know he probably got the riff off of Martha and, Van and the Vandellas record and you know they're using horns and Keith uses the the fuzz pedal and Andrew LeGoldham the Stones manager hears it and they put that out and Keith has to deal uh, with the frustration of having a massive worldwide number one hit well it, he didn't have to wait too long Otis Redding also recorded it and apparently heard exactly what he heard in terms of the horns and so forth. Although you're um, picking on, um, on Motown as a source for it is probably more accurate than uh, Stax because uh, 
the the Motown arrangement. Yeah, you're right. Um, that was um, very much influenced. I I, th- I or I hear it anyway. What happened in that in that record? And it's and it's not just the Stones. So this whole second wave of mostly London-based uh, R&B-based bands. The the Mercy Beat bands are kind of fizzling out in this period. Jerry and the Pacemakers and Freddie and the Dreamers are still having hits in the States, but they're losing ground fast in England. But you've got this harder core. You know, the Kinks are building on their initial success with songs like See My Friends and A Well-Respected Man. The Who have, you know, uh, multiple singles con- concluding with Substitute there. And then we've got Them and Van Morrison, and that's going to be our first song sample. Let's hear Them's version of Gloria, which was written by their singer Van Morrison. was Van Morrison and them with Gloria and that's a classic example of this ping pong effect where you've got an Irish band operating out of London heavily influenced by R&B acts like Ray Charles writing a song that quickly becomes a garage rock anthem for literally hundreds of white bands all across America yeah it's um it was one of those it was it was an era when it wasn't the band that was the big influence. It was the song. People were were trying to write songs like the songs they liked, and uh, not always succeeding, which is a, a good thing in this particular context. Yeah, but, but the sometimes the garage bands like Shadows of Night had a massive hit with this, where it was just a B side for them. But you also had uh, two bands that were direct acolytes of the Rolling Stones. They both stepped in uh, to alternate taking the Stones regular gig at the Marquee Club. And we're both, you know, one of them, the Pretty Things featured Dick Taylor, who was the original bassist of the Stones. And so the Yardbirds and Pretty Things kind of fight it out. Uh, And the Yardbirds lose during the Eric Clapton period, can't score a hit in England until Graham Goldman's For Your Love, which breaks both in England and the States, but also cost them their lead guitar player, Eric Clapton, who's headed off to seemingly um, more underground shores with the John Mayall Bluesbreakers. Right. He he didn't like the idea of playing pop music, and he wanted something with a little more depth to it. So he joined John Mayall's uh, Bluesbreakers. Meanwhile, but, um, the Yardbirds bring in somebody else. Yeah, which one was was this Jimmy Page? No, it was never... Jeff Beck. Yeah, it's Jeff Beck oh. first, and uh, they they went right. to Jimmy Page and asked them to, t- and he recommended Jeff Beck, who was laboring away in obscurity with a band called the Tridents. But immediately Jeff Beck makes his presence felt with just some amazing guitar work, not on "For Your Love," which hardly has a guitar part at all, but "Heartful of Soul" and uh, "Shapes of Things" and and multiple songs that put the Yardbirds kind of at the cutting edge of psychedelia. Well, in Britain, yeah, yeah, and 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 the animals are also big, and they they are still um, using outside songwriters, and they have a a hit that makes a big impact in Vietnam of all places, written by 
man, wow, we got to get out of this place. Yeah, that was one of the uh, one of the songs from Teen Pan Alley that they were given, and yet you can just tell from the title why it was a big deal with soldiers in Vietnam. They would really like to get out of this place, and, <laughs> and yet again, it wasn't yeah. that easy. Yeah, and and the the Teen Pan Alley crew, you know, Goffin and King have a big hits with Herman Hermits Hermits, and um, but they don't necessarily penetrate the British invasion that thoroughly. The Hollies are resorting to songs written by Graham Goldman there in the UK. The Dave Clark Five are writing their songs in house. Um, but one massive hit that was written in Team Pan Alley was was Hang On Sloopy, which was written by Burt Burns of Twist and Shout fame, and then produced by the crew that brought uh, the, the what's called the Strange Loves, brought us I Want Candy. But Hang On Sloopy is this mammoth yeah, there's no band. Yeah, it's just a studio group and right. and of uh, three producers, and I can't I'm blanking on their names. But with the McCoys. Yeah, I can I can pull it up real quick, but um, with the McCoys, you've got Rick Derringer, who's a hotshot guitar player. I mean, would you consider the McCoys a garage band? Yeah, they were sort of like the prototypical garage band. They were from uh, Indiana, just uh, across the state line from Dayton, and Dayton was the uh, was a place with a lot of teen clubs, so that's where they got to play. They were, of course, also teenagers themselves. And and that's a, a hit that is massive on both sides of the Atlantic. Andrew Lou Golden puts it out on his Impact record label. Yeah, and the, the producer t- team was Feldman, Goldstein, and Gutterer. That's, that's um, it. Yeah. Feldman, they, they, Feldman, Goldstein, Gutterer. And they put that out on Burt Burns' Bang Records. And um, Burt is also working with Atlantic. His partners in that record label are are the the Jerry Wexler and Ahmed Erdogan from Atlantic. Bang stood for uh, Burt, Ahmed, uh, Nesui, and um, uh, Gerald. Yeah, Gerald, yeah. Uh, Jerry Wexler. So um, it was it was basically the the Atlantic owners. Although they didn't distribute the label, they uh, they were just, I guess, artistic partners and financial partners. And Atlantic yeah. is still bubbling along at the beginning of this period. They're still having solid hits with Solomon Burke, but with some of their other artists like Don Covey, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, they have to farm it out to a little label in Memphis that we talked about in the past called Stacks. Well, yeah, I mean, Stacks has started up. In a in a barn in a suburb of of Memphis, and uh, the the president um, was a um, a fiddle player, a white fiddle player, who just um, knew that um, there was something something cooking, and it was it was an interracial thing. I mean, because Stax had their first um, had their first hit with the. Uh, uh, Last night by the Marquis, which were led by Packy Axton, which was uh, Jim Stewart's sister's son, and uh, it was it was it was a racially integrated band. I mean, it had black and white members. 
And Booker T and the MGs, the famous house band of Stax, was in this period. Originally, there were three black African Americans and one white guy, but uh, then then they bring in Duck Dunn on bass and replace African American bass player, and it's it's a half black, half white combo that powers Stax yeah. through this whole era. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, Stax was a fairly easygoing place until Martin Luther King got shot, and then. Um, than it wasn't anymore. <laughs> yeah, but in this little period, they're having um, hits uh, on their own with Otis Redding, who's coming into his own. You mentioned him earlier, covering the Stones. He also writes the song Respect, that, that later becomes a big anthem for Aretha Franklin. But, you know, Wilson Pickett comes to town, and Steve Cropper sits down with him, and they write hit songs like In the Midnight Hour. And Sam and Dave come to town and work with Isaac Hayes and David Porter uh, in the classic teaming of of singers and songwriter producers but motown is is really hitting their rhythm at this point the supremes as we talked about in the last episode it broke out big in 1964 with massive number ones and continue that streak working with holland dozer holland and the temptations have possibly their biggest hit ever with my girl written by Smokey robinson what else is going on at motown well it was it was pretty much their breakout year i mean I don't have the list of um, chart numbers in front of me, but um, it was um, the Polygram, which now owns Motown, put out a 12-volume series of of, uh, multiple CD sets year by year, every single put out by Motown. And uh, it, it occurred to me that the 1965 edition of this series is pretty much like a, a giant greatest hits record even songs that um, people aren't that familiar with they've got that magic touch all thanks to uh, holland dozier and holland the songwriting producing team that um really took over for motown there between them and Smokey robinson you know motown was unbeatable and they yeah holland dozier holland breaks out the four tops in this period who go from you know being a jazz a would-be jazz ensemble supper club type combo to right. as close to soul as Motown got with Levi Stubbs just ripping it up on vocals. And Stevie Wonder also breaks through with his second hit in this period. Right. Yeah, I mean, Barry Gordy, the head of Motown, did not like the church-oriented soul music that was being made in the South. Um, Stack's whole aesthetic was completely unwelcome in uh, in Motown, which is why a lot of the Motown session players um, played for other other labels that had more more gospel in their um, in their sound because those guys could play anything uh, but Mo- uh, Barry Gordy was was adamant that you were not going to reach white people with gospel-based soul music. He was wrong, of course, but... <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the same time, it's hard to knock his business acumen given the success they had. And Now I'm going to cut in our second song sample, and this is uh, Don Covey on Atlantic uh, with a very Curtis Mayfield-influenced Jimi Hendrix making one of his first appearances on a record. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Mercy, Mercy, later recovered by the Rolling Stones. Don Covey.
that was Don Kobe with uh, Have Mercy. And this is a song that's immediately covered by the Rolling Stones. And to me, this is one of the things that's really fun about this period is the synthesis is happening so fast. I mean, you've got Jimmy, a young Jimi Hendrix. No feedback. This is a very unformed Jimi Hendrix still doing his apprenticeship on the Chitlin circuit. And you can clearly hear he's been listening to a ton of Curtis Mayfield there. And then when you listen to the Stones cover this song, Brian Jones and Keith Richards come in with a dual guitar attack that takes some of the elements of the Jimi Hendrix riff, erases all the finesse, and just hammers it home. And it's just a really exciting period of cross-pollinization. And kind of leading this charge is Bob Dylan. We last heard from, uh, in the last episode, doing his first rock single that, that made the charts in Subterranean Homesick Blues. And he keeps it up with the Bringing It All Back Home album that's half acoustic, half electric, and then he brings in Michael Bloomfield from Chicago uh, for a single called Like a Rolling Stone. Right. Um, th- that was a very shocking record. Uh, the um, Paul Butterfield Blues Band with Michael Bloom- uh, Bloomfield on guitar. Uh, Electra, which put it out, was known as the Blue Chip Folk Label. And uh, all of a sudden they, they put this out and it was a weird, weird-looking band. They were, they were black and white too, you know. And, and uh, there was this guitar player up front. I mean, anybody who wouldn't ask Bloomfield to be on their session was just kidding themselves. <laughs> yeah, Dylan had played with him uh, through the Albert Goldman connection, I believe, when the first time Dylan came to Chicago and yeah. remembered him and called him up and, and told him not to play any of that B.B. King bullshit. Right. It was, that was really... And there was no problem for Michael. He, he knew it wasn't a blues session. You know, it, it, they already knew about other forms of electric music in the Butterfield Band. And another guy that's involved in this that we'll come back to you is Tom Wilson, the African-American producer who produces uh, Like Rolling Stone, although not the album that follows at Highway 61 Revisited. They bring in Bob Johnson to do that. And we'll come back to Tom Wilson. Another guy that's there is Al Cooper, who uh, is a guitar player with the band called The Blues Project there in New York. And as soon as he sees Bloomfield wiping the raindrops off his Telecaster or a Stratocaster that he hadn't even got a case for, Cooper realized he wasn't going to be playing guitar in that session and moved over to Oregon. And the two of them, uh, you know, forged this new electric sound with a piano, organ, and aggressive lead guitar that's going to reverberate. It comes from gospel, but it's going to reverberate uh, throughout the 60s. But meanwhile, on the West Coast, you've got a group of folkies. I mean, these guys are straight out of the new Christie Minstrels, and uh, I can't remember, Crosby was in the Ted Lewis Orchestra or something, and uh, come together and start doing Bob Dylan songs in four four time, and then have a massive hit with Mister Tambourine Man. Talking about yeah. The birds, of course. Yeah, and um, Dylan even dropped by their studio to uh, watch them record some of it, and and he he knew that they were maybe not doing exactly like him, but he approved of what they were doing. Uh, but he had to be kind of circumspect about saying anything in the press. Yeah. They, that's not how they were promoting the birds. Yeah, and it, 
rocket to number one on the charts, on the single charts, and then their first two albums do very well. Their second, it's not their second single, but they have another number one hit with uh, Pete Seeger's Turn, Turn, Turn. And then they sort of reach for the grail with Eight Miles High, written by Gene Clark and Dave Crosby and Jim McGuinn. And it's easily one of the hippest records of 1965 with, with bass parts and, and guitar parts influenced by John Coltrane and Ravi Shankar and all these sort of outre influences they've been listening to brought together. But it's held up on the charts because of drug references or suspected drug right. references. Right. It, 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 was, it was actually about their British tour. You know, and the key line there is, in places, small faces can be found. And that, that was a, a reference to the small faces the British band who opened for them on the tour. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Eight Miles High. with birds with eight miles high which started out pretty gangbusters on the charts but stalls out at number 14 probably because a lot of djs were turning it off because of of uh, alleged drug references and they kind of make me think of the Yardbirds, which brings in jimmy page eventually and and keeps pushing the envelope toward closer and closer to psychedelia and then falls apart when Jeff Beck quits on tour. The Birds, similarly, Gene Clark quits in the aftermath of, I think maybe even before the 8 Miles High single officially comes out, even though he was the lead writer and lead vocalist on it. And the Birds never recover their momentum. They're never, you know, they start out as this epic group having massive number one hits, the forefront of folk rock. Absolutely. What's important to note here is that the Birds were also playing week-long gigs on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. And that was a, a way to get noticed by the record industry and to build up a fan base. But um, they, once they turned into a huge hit-making machine, they couldn't really afford to spend seven days in Elmer Valentine's Little Whiskey A Go-Go Club. And that leaves the, the opening for bands like uh, Arthur Lee's Love to come along. Yeah, that was the one I was thinking of. And uh, that, that too, was part of the hippie scene, such as it was in Los Angeles. There was a guy named Vito, a mysterious little gnome-like figure, who um, was sort of like a guru and, and had, um, had a lot of um, dancers. They, they would play records and dance back at his house, and then they would be continue to dance. They'd dance in and out of clubs on the Sunset Strip. Everybody let them in for free because they were such a, you know, live event. And uh, so if if you were a band that Vito's dancers liked to dance to, that was a, another way to get successful. Yeah, and Love is doing so well on the circuit there in L.A. that they're buying cars and living in nice houses and, and become immediately reluctant to tour, which inhibits their growth. But they do have... 
an initial hit single, although it's not a massive hit on the charts, but it bubbles under pretty heavily and is a hit in several regions with uh, Burt Backrack and Hal David's Little Red Book. Yeah, and um, I think that was because nobody in Elector trusted them to be able to uh, write a hit. So um, that, that was a song that was making the rounds, and they just, they were the ones who covered it. Yeah, and did a and they get a hit off of it. And did with a pretty punk take on it. Burt Backrack's disavowed it because they didn't get the chord changes right. He prefers the Manford Man version, which is tidier, but doesn't uh, have the power that Arthur Lee and company bring to that song. And meanwhile, the L.A. scene, there's also a big studio scene going on. And people like P.F. Sloan are writing songs for people like Barry McGuire. And they have this massive, massive hit with a Eve of Destruction. Right. Yeah, um, that was that was the protest song that anybody could play. Really, I mean, it was it w- wasn't going to threaten your broadcast license by being too political. It was just uh, something that uh, w- it, 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 nobody could figure out what it was for. You know, it wasn't like Bob Dylan. You you weren't being forced to look in a certain direction uh, by the lyrics of the song. There, nothing concrete was being advocated for there it was just oh the world's a mess you know and uh, even pf sloan admitted he didn't know exactly what the song meant and that most of it was pretty automatic when he wrote it and and sloan's going to continue to have hits with with another folk group in la the turtles but meanwhile the the folky scene is quick to figure out that folk rock is a big opportunity and and sort of a loose coterie of of singers and musicians that had been playing in Greenwich Village spin out into two different bands one the Love and Spoonful with John Sebastian and Zalianowski stay in New York with Buddha Records and immediately start having hits like Do You Believe in Magic mm-hmm. and the others John Phillips and Mama Cass and company go uh, to the West Coast and hook up uh, with A&M Records and, and become the Mamas and the Papas with California Dreaming. Yeah, that was, um, it was, that was actually kind of sad. Cass Elliott was more of a solo niece, a woman, a powerful woman on the scene who attracts um, the, the brightest lights. Um, she, she, in fact was the one who um, introduced Zalianowski to uh, um, John Sebastian Jr. And that, that was the forming, that, that was how the Love and Spoonful began to happen, was when and, those two guys met each other in her living room. And later she introduces David Crosby and Graham Nash of the Hollies, and they spin off into Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So yeah, the, the big player on the underground scene and john phillips is going to go on to be a big power behind the monterey pop festival as well but in the meantime they're massive hit makers in the 65 66 period and kind of bring uh the hippie ideal into the mainstream in a big way and then one other folk rock group i want to mention they don't try to be folk rockers that's imposed on them i'm talking about simon and garfunkel of course who record an album wednesday morning at 3 a.m that's straight acoustic folk with original songs by paul simon it's a flop. They break up. Garfunkel goes back to dental school. Paul Simon goes to England. And then Tom Wilson that we've been talking 
talking about as a producer for Bob Dylan finds one of their tracks and adds electric backing to it and it becomes the sound of silence. Yeah, it was a big hit. Uh, he didn't even tell them that he had done that. And uh, Paul Simon was knocking around skanky little folk clubs in rural England and uh, attracting, you know, up, up to 25 people on a given evening. He goes back to the United States to discover that um, his his record is number one. It was something he'd never, you know, he, he knew nothing about. Wasn't really happy about, from what I understand, but because um, he he'd recorded another album solo in England. Yeah, um, for for Columbia, for and had Columbia, to England. change his plans up and 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 adapt. And Simon and Garfunkel did famously, of course. And Tom Wilson's tenure at Columbia comes to an end right around this period, and he goes to MGM Verve and signs a couple of really unlikely bands, possibly the most out out there groups. Uh, that you talk about in the chapter, one of them is Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention in L.A. Yeah, and uh, he he was able to to convince um, Verve that they were a blues band. That's how they got <laughs> how they got signed. And and so then they they probably, they probably figured, oh well, he's black, he knows what the blues are, you know, he knows if somebody's a blues band, and that's what happened. And then they they hit the market with a pretty unprecedented mix of satire. Like you mentioned in the book, Zappa uh, had been busted by a local sheriff on some pretty trumped-up obscenity charges. He'd been entrapped. He was solicited to make a dirty audio recording, whatever that is, and then uh, gets busted and does time in jail. And it seemingly scarred him for life because ever after he's obsessed with smut jokes and uh, satiring everybody. And – the album Freak Out that comes out, one of the first double albums to come out, has a beautiful cover. And Zappa, you know, he doesn't trouble the pop charts a great deal, but he sells a lot of records and has a big impact on the hippie culture. Meanwhile, Tom Wilson's other signing for Verve has immaculate counterculture credentials coming out of Andy Warhol's Plastic Exploding Inevitable in New York. But the Velvet Underground and Nico don't click with the incipient counterculture. No, they they were too dark. They were too negative, and they, you know they they weren't going to fit into the peace and love ethos. And, and and that's also interesting to me that their first album was recorded in spring of '66 for the most part, but doesn't come out until six until '67. And I I don't think it would have ever been a commercial hit under any circumstances in that point in time. But I do think it would have fit in. Uh, better in 66 than it did in 67 but ifs and buts are candies and nuts as they say uh, there and and so yeah wilson's just a fascinating character and really at the center of this era both uh with cutting massive hits like simon and garfunkel and and like like rolling stone for bob dylan but also planting seeds that are going to continue to sprout in sort of the two-headed beast of the rock avant-garde you've got sort of the conventional uh, European classical music influenced strain represented by Zappa, and then you've got the uh, more jazz and underground beat influenced uh, side and the Velvet Underground, and those are both going to be. I would, keep- so I would reverse those two, um, especially since John Cale was in the Velvet Underground 
and he was in America because he'd won a, a prize sponsored by Leonard Bernstein as, a, um, as a young classical composer. It's true. Zappa, Zappa does have jazz credentials, and the Velvet Underground definitely have classical music, but their classical music was kind of more primitivism, and Zappa was more drawn to the, the ornate, more technically uh, polished uh, type composers, 12 tone. Well, well, the, well, the Velvet Underground was into improvisation. Yes, and, and Zappa, Zappa was a control freak. Yes, even his jazz albums it barely allows people to improvise. But meanwhile. I don't even know what about in terms of Zappa's jazz albums. He, he was a guy who really thought he was the, the great master of all genres of music and uh, never really impressed me as being that. But uh, <laughs> He's got a loyal following, but I'm personally more of a Captain Beefheart uh, guy than a yeah, Zappa guy. If Zappa didn't do anything else, he introduced his boyhood friend Don Van Vliet to the world as Captain Beefheart. Yeah, and and Beefheart's on A and M Records around this period, uh, doing a pretty powerful Howlin' Wolf impression, and not really giving any clues to the craziness that's going to come. And another trend that's happening along the same time is Blue-eyed Soul, which is artists like the Young Rascals in Long Island, Mitch Ryder in Detroit, the Righteous Brothers on the West Coast, that are white guys that are wearing their soul influence on their sleeve and making an impact on the charts. Yeah. They, um, if Motown wouldn't do gospel oriented soul music, these, these white kids definitely were capable of doing it. And in the case of the righteous, righteous brothers with Phil Spector producing, uh, you've lost that love and feeling is one of the biggest hits of that or any era. Yeah, and the thing is, they were just another nightclub act. They've been playing around the clubs in, in the West Coast forever, you know. I'm sure that when Phil Spector told people he'd signed the Righteous Brothers, that people looked at him and went, oh, why? <laughs> just, you know, just, another, just another one of those acts. Yeah, but with uh, the songwriting team he put together, I think it was Ellie Greenwich, um, and Spectre, and I'm forgetting Greenwich's partner's name, and then the Spectre production style, it's sort of the, it's really the last gasp of Phil Spectre's glorious run. He's going to bring on Ike and Tina Turner for one last attempt uh, in 1966, but that one, River Deep Mountain High, is one toke over the line, as they say. Yeah, it, it definitely was. He didn't understand that, kind of this kind of soul music he he was trying to make his stuff was all very much his individualism and when he tried to um to do some well when he tried to do say a, a jerry ragaboy production which is what he was trying to do i think um it was it was bound to fail it, it, it doesn't hold together it's not as great a record as he thought it was yeah, it had a big impact in England, but it 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 didn't hit at all in the states. Kind of caught between uh, white programmers who didn't want to play an Ike and Tina Turner record and black programmers who didn't want to play that record because it was very or that Ike Tina record because it didn't sound like them. No, not at all. Although it is, you can hear if you listen to '60s prog rock like uh, Procol Harum's "Wider Shade of Pale." 
I think definitely bears a stamp of somebody who listened to River Deep Mountain High a whole lot. So it's being heard. Pe- people like Andrew Lugoldum and others make a big splash about it in England, but it doesn't do much in the States. And another artist, an acolyte of Phil Spector out there in L.A., who uh, has been a hit maker throughout this whole early 60s period, is Brian Wilson, and he's watching Spectre closely. He's hiring a lot of the same session musicians, the crew that's later known as the Wrecking Crew, and he makes pet sounds and good vibrations, and sort of that pattern repeats. He has some hits in the States. Good vibrations is big everywhere, but pet sounds is really more accepted in England than it is in the States. Yeah, it, it was it was just not the kind of guitar-centered virtuosity that I think the record buyers were looking for in the States at that point. Yeah, it's an eccentric record, lyrics by Tony Asher. It's it's a very mature, contemplative album and, and you know, made for lonely, sad people. And that's that's uh, not generally... Like yeah, like Brian Wilson. And, and so it took a long time for that to be acknowledged as a masterpiece, which um it has sense but good vibrations on the other hand is an immediate number one hit it's got a theremin on it it's got you know it was a fruit of multiple sessions i think he spent twenty thousand dollars on it which is an incredible fortune for 1966 to make a record but kind of like phil Spector, that's the last gasp for brian wilson he's descending into madness there in his sand covered home studio yeah he's um well it was um, smile that really did him in. It was he he wanted to make a, a masterpiece as every track on that record, um, his teenage symphonies to God uh, idea, and uh, he was basically taking too much LSD and and not handling it well, and uh, he was also kind of losing the group. They they were not quite as dedicated to his style of experimentation but one band that is listening very closely to what brian wilson is doing and and he's listening to them it's again this this cycle this virtuous cycle of of cross influencing is the beatles who we haven't talked about so far but you know they have a big they that i wouldn't say they have a massive hit with the, the help movie but it's a big hit they're still the beatles it's 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 the beatles in technicolor the Help album, right. you know, spawns Yesterday and, and Help and, new, and Ticket to Ride, numerous singles. But then in December of 65, they drop Rubber Soul, which partly because of Capitol Records' ham-handed butchery and random track assignments, sounds a lot more like folk rock than the English version does. Right. Yeah, the, the, the Beatles were able to do acoustic music and... Um, so that's that's what what that was. It was there, you know. You've got to hide your love away. That that was that became a a folk rock hit in the United States in the hands of another band called the Silky, which and their name was a direct reference to a uh, a famous Scottish folk song. And and then the the Beatles follow that with Revolver, which takes the experimentation in all kinds of directions, including the way ahead of its time tomorrow never knows which was covered virtually note for note by the chemical brothers in the 90s and was a big hit record and so that you know you've got them doing everything from symphonic rock with delano rigby to absolute psychedelic experimentation with tomorrow never knows kids songs in yellow submarine 
And then they launch uh, uh, this worldwide tour that doesn't go well at all, partly because of some things John Lennon has said. Yeah, that's true. He His little comment about, you know, we're bigger than Jesus didn't go over too well with the Jesus crowd. <laughs> uh, is a big chunk of the American record-buying public. Yeah, he was just not thinking, and uh, that's that's what happened. He, yeah, go ahead. No, he, he semi-apologized for it later, but um, the damage had been done. There were the bonfires, and well, that was actually that there was a station in, in Texas that sponsored a Burn Your Beatles albums bonfire. And uh, the next day, the transmitter was hit by a lightning bolt. <laughs> a little karma there. But the, the, God, God, the Beatles fan, in case you were worried, you know? Yeah. But the Beatles do retire from touring. That 66 tour ending at Candlestick Park is the last ever Beatles tour. And another artist who explodes big through this period is Bob Dylan, who follows up Highway 61 with an album he cuts in Nashville. Uh, he brings back Al Cooper, has Robbie Robertson from the band, but nobody else from the band. Everybody else is Nashville Session Cats, and records Blonde on Blonde, and then has a big hit with uh, Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35, a.k.a. Everybody Must Get Stoned. Somehow he doesn't run into uh, record bands, radio bands, because of that. But then he does a tour of England uh, that's pretty famous and infamous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was... Um... That was the tour that he um, he took. He basically grabbed Ronnie Hawkins' band, the Hawks from Canada. Uh, their drummer was the only American in the band, the only U.S. citizen. He was from Arkansas, Levon Helm. He didn't want to go to Europe, so they uh, they just got another drummer to uh, be in the band. I'm trying to remember his name. He, he was from Houston, of all places. Yeah, it's um, um, I think Mickey Jones is his name, and he's later a TV yeah. performer. Yeah, that's who it was. And and and, and the, the band was just, you know, red hot. And there was also an affront to Dylan's fans as, as the appearance at uh, the Newport Folk Festival had been they just really didn't want him playing electric for no particular good reason. It's just, that's not how you do it. Yeah. And, the and the aura of craziness around Dylan, you know, both Al Cooper, Michael Bloomfield opted out of touring with Dylan cause he wanted to stick with Paul Butterfield, but Al Cooper toured with him for a little while and then dropped out cause he didn't want to be there when Dylan got assassinated. And you know, the craziness uh, around Dylan is, not quite as intense as that around the Beatles, but it's very similar. And so there's this, you know, between Phil Spector, Brian Wilson, and the Beatles retreating from the road, and then Dylan retreating from the road, a lot of the leaders of this movement are crashing and burning. It's okay. There were a lot more where they came from. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. And one of them is Michael Bloomfield, who with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band uh, continues to just blaze. And they, they cut an album called East West. It has a huge impact on the incipient psychedelic scene. Yes. That was that was the product of much LSD and jamming with Elvin Bishop, the other guitarist in the Butterfield Band. 
uh, and it was based on some song called It's About Time by Nick Gravenitis, which is why he got the um, the songwriting credit for the for the track, weirdly enough. And meanwhile, Bloomfield's closest analog in England, Eric Clapton, uh, cuts a record with May- John Mayall, the Blues Breakers album, that's you know, one of the first records to use a Marshall stack on a record with the Les Paul uh, revolution and guitar sound, but he's not happy and immediately spins off and forms a group called Cream. Well, he was probably influenced by management to emphasize himself more, which Mel was not about to let him do. I mean, Mel's always had blues breakers. That was, that's the name of his band. Who the blues breaker of the moment is, that's kind of hard to say. So um, he, he'd already been cutting uh, solo records. There's a, um, um, there's an album that Electra did that uh, features some uh, Butterfield tracks and um, also, I don't remember what he called them, Eric Clapton. And the, it was the powerhouse. powerhouse. Yeah. And uh, there he was doing that that kind of music, uh, but with Stevie Winwood uh, also playing on the track. And, you know, he thought, wow, I can do a band with other virtuosos. And there were all these people who had been in blues bands and, and interval bands for jazz bands and stuff in the clubs. So there were, there were people to grab. And he did. You know, he, his manager, Robert Sigwood, uh, helped him get uh, Ginger Baker on drums and, and Jack Bruce on uh, on bass, and this, the idea of the power trio was formed. And so the the underground is, you know, sort of blossoming through Clapton and and Bluefield. But meanwhile, the pop side of things sort of strikes back. The Herman's Hermits are probably drawing bigger crowds in some places than the Beatles were and having big hits, but. Uh, one of the guys, the architects of Teen Pan Alley, thinks there's an opportunity on TV, and they can't get the Beatles, so they put together their own prefab four. Yeah, the monkeys. It was it was a it was a thing about about uh, music publishing. Really, it, it was um, the the actual group didn't matter as much as the songs did. You know, getting a hit song through television exposure was. Um, Something that hadn't really been tried before, and and, and the, so, so yeah. So, so since Columbia Screen Gems music was bankrolling the show, that was that was how they made their money. And yeah, and Don Kirshner put together the project, and and Boyce and Hart were the main writers and producers. But you also had Neil Diamond and Goffin and King, and and. You know, kind of the whole Team Pan Alley crew gets back together and, and has another run with the Monkees, who take a lot of heat for being openly a manufactured group, or it's hard to conceal that their records. But, you know, this is the same model that Phil Spector had used, that the Beach Boys have been using, and Motown is probably the king of it. But another group that combines TV and Team Pan Alley is uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Well, to an extent, uh, they were a, a real group in the Pacific Northwest 
doing instrumentals. The idea that they were a vocal group, that was another thing entirely. That once again, they were, they were doing uh, songs written for them. And let's hear uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders doing Kicks, a song by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, inspired, allegedly, by Gary Geffen, Goffin's drug problems. This is Kicks. inside When you come back down girl, still ain't feeling right Don't it seem like kicks just And that was Paul Revere and the Raiders with Kicks which is kind of coalesces numerous trends. You've got the team Pan Alley side, the Paul Revere and the team were getting enormous uh, TV exposure, but they also had legit garage band credentials coming from the Pacific Northwest. They'd done an early version of Louie Louie you know, or or peers of groups like the Sonics uh, and the original Whalers up there, and and they um, bring it all together in another drug referencey song. Although this one is seen as an anti-drug song and isn't completely crushed by the censors. Yeah, well, there, there was there was some sort of rumor going around at the time that um, uh, Gotham and King had, had gotten money from the uh, American Pharmacological Society, some some trade group, as as a way of saying don't misuse drugs uh, in that song. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was a very pervasive rumor at the time. You mean Manuel rather than Goffin and King? Sorry, um, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's easy to mix up the Teen Pan Alley uh, tours, but this this idea um, of s- produced groups, and also there's a lot of interest in interracial groups around this time. And so in L.A., there's a group called the Rising Suns featuring the African American Taj Mahal on vocals, and the Anglo American guitar wonder kid Ry Cooter on guitar. And meanwhile, uh, in Montreal and Detroit. There's a group called the Minor Birds featuring a young Rick James on vocals and Neil Young and Bruce Palmer uh, on guitar and bass. And they're actually signed to Motown. Yeah. Well, that's not as weird as it seems. I mean, Motown has this, I mean, Detroit has a tunnel in it that you go into and you, the other side of the tunnel is Canada. Canada is really, there are parts of Canada that are south of Detroit. Yeah. Windsor, Ontario, for one. Yeah, it's just an accepted thing in Detroit. But unfortunately, Rick James is in trouble with for being AWOL from the Navy, and Barry Gordy talks him into to coming clean and doing his jail time, and and has begins a lifelong relationship with Motown that's going to blossom big in the late seventies. But that sends Neil Young and Bruce Palmer to L.A., where they're going to meet Steve Stills and form. The Buffalo Springfield. Meanwhile, uh, in San Francisco, a number of groups are coalescing. Uh, one group, the Warlocks, is coalesced around Ken Casey and soon changes their name. Yeah, they were they were a direct result of the um, of the uh, Stanford group of LSD 
aficionados. They were kind of the house band for Ken Kesey and the uh, and the Merry Pranksters. And but they, they they were also independent in that they got to um, that they weren't really affiliated with any group of um, of people. Uh, they were just they they were a bluegrass band that went weird and very weird, becoming the Grateful Dead. And meanwhile, a guy named Marty Balin, who's got his own club, The Matrix, forms a folk rock group, uh, kind of modeled on the Mamas and the Papas, but with their own guitars, bass, and drums incorporated, and that's the Jefferson Airplane. Right. And uh, they they had a, a real blueprint in their mind, but unfortunately lost their, their first female singer, Cynthia Anderson. Uh, she got pregnant and had to leave the, the band just as they were taking off. I mean, I remember hearing the Jefferson Airplane on the pop station when I went to college in 1965 in Dayton. This, this uh, radio station was playing them like any other pop hit. Yeah, they were the first San Francisco band to signed to a major label in RCA and uh, put out the first album, but it doesn't hit the charts in a big way, although it's bubbling under. And then they lose their drummer, Skip Spence, who's going to go on to form Moby Grape and Signe Anderson, like you said, who's pregnant and retires from the road. But they find a replacement for Signe and Grace Slick of Great Society. Right. The, the um, That was one of the many groups that were around there. Um, Darby Slick, Grace's husband. Her husband's brother. A, you got that wrong in the book. It's he. That she. Oh, he was her brother-in-law, not not her husband. I can't remember what her husband's well, he was, name. He, he was an accomplished um, instrumentalist on several Indian instruments and had studied classical Indian techniques. Um, I don't know where, but uh, he he was known in the Indian music scene. And he brought some of that to uh, to the group they had, the the Great Society. Yeah, and he writes a song called Somebody to Love, which is going to go on to become the Jefferson Airplane's big hit. And yeah, Slick's husband was Jerry, the drummer in that comedy. Right. But um, the, at the same time, you know, you've got Big Brother and the Holding Company from Texas, and they find Janis Joplin. Quick no, sing- they weren't from Texas. They were, they were from San Francisco. Well, Sam Andr- Andrews was from Texas, though. Uh, he, the, and so was Janis Joplin. But the band yeah. formed in San Francisco. So it's a San Francisco band, but I just got to get my Texas uh, connection there. But they, <laughs> <laughs> but they were also connected to a guy named Chet Helms. And he, he takes over the Avalon and has a rival in Bill Graham who launches shows at the Fillmore. Right. Th- that's... See the, the people who came back from the summer at the at the Red Dog, um, they they formed a concert promotion agency called the Family Dog, and um, they they put on the first of the um, the, the equivalent of the um, poetry reading in London was a show called A Tribute to Doctor Strange, where the Charlatans and a lot of other San Francisco bands that nobody was really aware were there uh, got to play on stage. And once again, that attracted a whole bunch of people who had this, gee, I didn't know there were so many of us kind of moment. And um, they, um, they, uh, it was the first 
San Francisco dance, you know, that that uh, that became the, the template for all of those uh, Fillmore and Avalon things. Uh, they, sold the, they sold the name to Chet Helms, who was in San Francisco working for Lemar, a legalized marijuana um, lobby group. He was talk, fundraising for them. Talk what? about... Well, talk about well ahead of your time. <laughs> yeah, they were about forty years ahead of their time with that one. And 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 another group that's there, I got to mention, uh, is the Thirteenth Floor Elevators from Austin, Texas, who actually who have a regional hit. It's a big hit in Texas, and also a number two on the San Francisco local charts. And they play uh, the ballrooms for a while, even though they're falling apart from Rocky Erickson's LSD abuse. Um, well, they, they were required by, um, I can't remember which guy in the band. Tommy Hall, was, the jug player. Yeah, Tommy Hall was, was a militant um, lobbyist for LSD, and it, they they were required by him to take acid and see if that helped them. Yeah, and, and it, it did not bear the fruit that he was thinking it would, as far as we know. No. And, and the Fillmore is an interesting venue because that had been historically an African American venue there in San Francisco, and it, it was it was where the good jazz groups played. It, back when jazz meant dancing, that was where people went. It was this giant. I believe it had been a, a church at one point because there was a um, a board to one side of the stage, which hymns were supposed to be listed. They, they discovered a whole bunch of these little pieces of wood that you would stick in this board so that the congregation would know the, um, the hymns that were going to be used during the service. Um, but it was actually a jazz club. It had its rock and roll history uh, moment early on when Johnny Otis discovered the Lester there. Uh, and... Uh, she was uh, a local performer. A lot of, a lot of uh, black performers came up, but San Francisco is not a center of black music. Never has been. Although uh, there's there's one connection to the what's coming in R&B in the next few years that they're in San Francisco. And ironically, he's tied to the one San Francisco group that's not part of this incipient ballroom scene, but is having hits, and that's the folk rock Bo Brummels. And I'm talking about Sly Stone, who produced the first Bo Brummels album. Right, and the the Great Society uh, singles, and the Vegetables singles. I mean, Sylvester Stewart, as he is actually named, um, he would he was um, a wizard engineer. He was a disc jockey at KSOL KSOL uh, radio in uh, San Francisco. And he, he was a pretty big presence on the scene. He, he mainly wanted to work um, doing production. And his partner was uh, Tom Big Daddy uh, Donahue, a, a local disc jockey, uh, some renown on the uh, local Top 40 station. But yeah, Sly Stone, he was everywhere. And and is watching the scene closely and and putting together his master plan that we'll be talking about uh, in future episodes. But meanwhile, on the West Coast, there's there's uh, some other R&B. You mentioned Jerry Ragavoy, uh, the producer, and he gets an opportunity to take over 
the band at a, what would have been a Frank Sinatra session and brings in Lorraine Ellison to do Stay With Me. And let's hear a little bit of Stay With Me before you talk about it. Lorraine Allison with Stay With Me, which isn't a pop hit, but does perform strongly on the R&B charts, and it's a really remarkable record. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that Spectre was aiming for, but he didn't have he didn't have the understanding of gospel music that, that uh, uh, Rags had always had. I mean, all these famous Jerry Ragavoy songs, there's... Uh, Time on My Side. Did, Time, time is on my side. Um, get it while you can. You know, a lot of, a lot of his his records um, were not only R and B hits, but got covered by you know Jan- Janis Joplin records several of Ragavoy's records or covers covered things yeah, piece, from uh, what? A piece of my heart with the Burt Burns yeah. uh, co-write uh, that. It's a big that's hit, right. big brother. But that's a couple years in the future. Meanwhile, the New Orleans rhythm and blues scene—they don't have a native New Orleans record company to push them, but they do have Alan Toussaint, the Neville brothers, and Lee Dorsey, and go on quite a nice run of hits. Yeah, that was that was due to Cosmo Matassa owning a really great, um, really great recording studio. Uh, in New Orleans, the, the sound was just right, and of course, there were musicians coming out their ears. I mean, there were so many of them. So um, it was the beginning of a golden era for New Orleans R&B. Although Matassa had been there forever and had uh, recorded Fats Domino's first hits in the early fifties. Yeah, and, and a lot of those same players cross over, and it's very much a tradition, you know, connecting. Fats Domino uh, through Alan Toussaint to the meters and, and what goes on in the 70s and 80s and 90s and on to this day. Meanwhile, the guy that was the king of R&B, the last episode we did, James Brown has been tied up with lawsuits with King Records. Right. He wanted to um, a bigger slice of the pie or something. I don't know exactly what was going on. Um He'd had his, his arguments with, with King, and uh, they didn't see eye to eye. They'd never seen eye to eye. You know, it's his first record. They were playing it in the studio, and um, Sid Nathan, the head of King, came in and, and just, you know, what's going on here? That guy's he always doing is singing one word, you know, please. What's that all about? And uh, it turned out to be a gigantic hit, not only for James Brown and for King Records. And uh, and yet, Sid seemed to be suspicious of what it was that uh, James was doing. And he's cut in some major ground. He drops two singles, uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, and I Got You, I Feel Good, that lay the template down for a whole new genre of music, funk. Yeah. Yeah, James seemed to know what he was doing. Um, 
although it was plenty weird and it wasn't really connected in any identifiable way with what else was going on in rhythm and blues. James just was in his own world. Yeah, and and he's going to pull the world to follow. But meanwhile, you close the chapter with one other development that's happening in the Atlantic. And, you know, they've kind of struggled in the mid-60s. They got the relationship with Stax, which carried him over. Uh, but they make a big signing right around this time. Who, who joins up with Atlantic? Well, a, a major Detroit talent named Aretha Franklin. She'd been around forever, and uh, she'd actually made a recording debut uh, on a gospel record uh, done at her father's church. And, and Jerry Wexler remembers listening to that and, and thinking, she's I wonder if this, this girl can still sing. And as it turned out, of course, she was signed to Columbia Records as a jazz artist, making really not very good records. But you could hear somebody had a talent. And she also had enough success that she was touring, which is how she got to hear Respect. She was coming in from the... Um, Detroit Airport and uh, the Rationals version of the song was on the radio. And, and, and thought, that, huh. yeah, that was uh, one of the great, you know, you're always dropping these little nuggets. And I had vaguely heard of the Rationals. I think I had them on one of those uh, sub Pebbles compilations, but I didn't know that they had done respect. And again, it's that cross pollinization that I'm talking about. You've got an African American soul group and Otis Redding and, the, and backed by Booker T and the MGs in Memphis dropping a song, and then it's covered by a white garage band in Detroit, and then it's heard by Aretha Franklin, a gospel-drenched African-American singer, also in Detroit, and she's going to take that song to Muscle Shoals, and we'll talk about that next time. Good idea. So this has been Nate Wilcox and Ed Ward. We're discussing Ed's The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. Ed, I'm looking forward to the next one. Me too. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about 1967, the year of Monterey Pop, when the Beatles lost Brian Epstein and gained the Maharishi. Brian Wilson blew it, and Otis Redding died. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. <laughs>